This is a presentation of Redemption Bible Church. For more information, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org. One of the lies that I hear in my head when I'm preparing a sermon is, uh, there's no point in this. Because likely we're not going to remember any of this in a couple of hours, right? It's okay to laugh, I know. (laughs) Most likely we'll forget by the time announcements come, right? But we all remember announcements. That guy just <laughs> kills it every single time. And I, and I say we because I'm including myself in this, and I'm the one doing the talking up here. There's a point of doing this Sunday, every Sunday, faithfully. But there's some truth in our forgetfulness. Research has found that approximately 56% of information is forgotten within an hour. Like, you've already forgotten what I said, or you will just remember 44% of it by the time this is done. 56% of information forgotten within an hour, 66% after a day, and 75% after six days. I could preach this next week. It's okay. We won't remember. (laughs) Our brains have this remarkable uh, uh, capabilities, but its capacity to store and recall details, it's limited, right? It's It's not just a you thing. It's a human thing. It's our nature to forget. At the same time, what we forget really matters because it brings various consequences. Right? For example, forgetting your car keys or your uh, keys uh, or your purse or your wallet or forgetting your son's date of birth at the doctor's office, it brings some strange looks and questioning from the staff. Is this your son, Mr. Philip? Those examples you can categorize as temporary inconvenience, right? Like you'll eventually find your keys. You'll eventually find your wallet, hopefully. This is temporary inconvenience. However, there are other examples where forgetting has higher stakes and significant consequences. For example, uh, forgetting to bring your inhaler or EpiPen. That can be a death or life situation. Or forgetting to put on your seatbelt. The more significant it is, the less we can afford to forget, especially due to the consequences. And so going back to the question in my head, why do this? We do this to remember who God is because we cannot afford to forget God. And yet we do. We all do by putting other things above him. And the book of Hosea has been about this, how the people of God constantly forgot who God is and what he has done, leading them to their own judgment and death. They forgot. And so they were not faithful to God, and they rejected God. And however, this morning, I want us to focus on how we can be faithful to God by remembering God's faithfulness to us. So if you have your Bible with you, open to uh, Hosea chapter 11, verse 12. We'll be finishing off Hosea here this morning. Let's just jump into the text right away. Hosea shares a bit about the origin and history of Ephraim. There's a history of self-reliance and deceit. Verse 12 says, Ephraim has surrounded me with lies. And the house of Israel with deceit, Ephraim feeds on the wind the end of Ephraim, the the northern kingdom of Israel, the nation God chose to be his people through his covenant was coming 
to an end. And the first two verses explains why. The character of Ephraim was of self-reliance and deceit. They forgot God, so they didn't need God, and so they were deceived thinking they only needed themselves. The people fed on the wind, pursuing something without substance. Don't go chasing after the wind. Definitely don't try to go get full off the wind because there's literally nothing there for you. And the more they pursued and attempted to manage life on their own terms, the more they lied and the more they believed in those lies. Right? Deception convinces you that the wrong thing, the wrong truths, lies are true. And instead of turning to God in relation for protection, they pursued their own strategy of self-reliance. Side note, there is no strategy of self-reliance as followers of Jesus. And so instead of trusting God, they trusted themselves. They went apart from God's perfect covenant agreement, and they went to pursue treaties and political and military relations with nations instead of God. They dismissed the covenant they had with God and tried to gain favor with Egypt with oil. And they created a treaty with the nation of Assyria. And why this is important and why this is so detrimental for Ephraim is that Assyria was the one that eventually destroyed Ephraim. Do we see how deep Deception and self-reliance goes. Ephraim chose Assyria over God to be its covenantal partner. They willfully picked the agreement that would kill their nation. It's dangerous to forget about God. Dangerous to forget what he has done, what he will do. It's dangerous to forget about God's grace because it leads to deception and a lack of repentance. And Hosea now reflects on the history of Israel by sketching out the life of Israel's forefather, Jacob, in Genesis. Right? Jacob, the founder of Israel, including the northern kingdom, had a character of self-reliant and deceit in the beginning. Even from the beginning at birth, he was overly assertive, grabbing the heel of his brother, And growing up, he deceived his brother Esau and his father Isaac for a blessing and then tried to bribe Esau with a gift. He would would pray to God, he would ask God, but then he would do things that didn't reflect his trust to God. And he had this reputation of scheming, trying to get ahead of God. And Jacob, like the people of Israel, was using God versus loving God. They would give the appropriate sacrifices as a way to appease God, but the heart behind it was buying God off to receive prosperity, not God. But Jacob finally prevailed in the struggle, in his lifestyle of scheming through an encounter with God. As Hosea 12, 4 states, he wept and sought favor from God. Something changed. One commentary states that the way Jacob prevailed was through the surrender of faith, laying his hands onto the Lord and refusing to let him go. Jacob was made aware of his yield or his need to yield God, and he did. 
And then he met with God at Bethel where God revealed to him and saying, I am God Almighty and was given a new name, Israel. And do we want to see transformation in our lives? We got to yield. Yield to God in humility. That's the opposite of self-reliance is yielding to God in humble faith. That's when transformation occurs in our lives, when we yield to God and his word. And so is there something this morning in our life that we're not yielding to God? Something that we're relying on our own plan, own terms versus him. Hosea is pleading to the nation, return to the Lord just as Jacob did at Bethel, where he met with God and received the promises of God. Return to his grace in repentance. Stop making excuses. Stop covering up your sin. You can't deceive God. Stop trying to get ahead of God. But wait on him. Wait on the Lord. Have faith. However, the place where Jacob met and was transformed with God at Bethel, unfortunately now became a place of corruption a place of idol worship. And the fall of Ephraim is inevitable. They continued to disregard God over and over and over again. And Hosea continues to expose the heart of the nation, even through their business dealings, right? They would have false balances or scales that didn't align right. And these balances, these scales, would allow them to obtain illegal wealth through fraud. And not only did they rip people off, verse 8 says they would boast about it. They said, look, I'm rich. I've made it big and and look how well I've covered up my tracks. No hint of fraud, no hint of sin. And they made riches an idol. They went from serving God to serving money. And Jesus says in Matthew 6, man, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. We live in a wealthy nation. Most of us live in comfort, meaning we're not needing to worry about our next meal. And uh, comfort isn't the issue. It's the source of comfort. Are we finding security by trusting in our income? Or are we reminded of the source that we've been given by God to steward? Man, it's easy to dream of making it big. It's easy to chase the dream of making it big, even in this spot. But God did not save us so that we can make it big. He says, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, not on earth. And God responds to Ephraim's, look, I am rich with a strong contrast. I am Yahweh. I am your God. The God of the universe doesn't need to say more than that as a comeback. Your freedom from Egyptian slavery, your identity as my people, your present existence is because of me, not you. You have forgotten me, 
You have replaced me. You do not love me. And now God is going to return to them to their exodus existence where they will live in tents rather than their wealth that they trusted to protect them from God's judgment. I have been warning you. It's I that spoke through the prophets. You know what I'm asking for. I'm asking for repentance and turn away from idolatry and turn to me. You're feeding on the wind. You're being deceived. Repent, repent, come back to me. And in Gilead and, and Gilgal, a well-known place of wickedness and idol worship, and God says, man, it will all come to nothing. Their altars that they created where they worship their idols, it's going to look like debris. I sent the prophets to guard you like sheep, but you have ignored them. You have ignored me. And most dangerously, you have ignored my grace. Your verdict is guilty and you will be accountable for your deeds by paying the penalty. It's not a feel-good sermon yet. In chapter 13, contrast the past, present, and future of Ephraim. At one point, there was trembling when they sat on the table. The nation was powerful and revered. But they chose to worship Baal gradually more and more and more. And they drifted away from God more and more and more. And they left God. They chose Baal, the God of fertility. Baal promised fertility and life, but they have been deceived. They put their hope and devotion in something outside of God. They put their hope in their nation, not the God of their nation. And instead of a life promised by Baal... They've been led to death. Even though they had died spiritually, they continue to sin more and more. As one commentary states that even though the nation had died, they went on drinking the poison that had killed them. Sin leads to deeper sin. Not only do we drink the poison, but we go back to drink more of it and more of it. We desire it even though it can kill us. And without genuine repentance and faith in Jesus, we're marching towards our death just like Ephraim. The nation got to a point where they were even offering human sacrifices to please their false god. No influence of God was left. That's a very scary thing. And we sense that around in our world today, right? God has acknowledged less, believed less, obeyed less. And that's going to be the trend until Jesus comes back. And our job, and we got to remember that our hope is not in country, is not in income, but only in God. We're not Israel. We're followers of Jesus. Says that if you want to follow me, it will cost you everything. Ephraim will disappear like the dew in the morning that disappears, like the grain tossed in the wind, like the smoke from a fire that disappears when it goes out. The once exalted nation is to be destroyed. 
And we see Ephraim's execution and death sentence due to the verdict, guilty. And God tells them of his past grace that has been shown and the removal of that grace in his judgment. Right, look at verse 6 with me. But when they had grazed, they became full. They were filled and their heart was lifted up. Therefore, they forgot me. There are uh, many theories out there of why we forget. Uh, decay theory, the, the brain actively prunes memories that become unused. Like my Greek and my Hebrew decay theory, it's all gone. But we've got Tim, it's okay. Interference theory, old information competing with new information. Yep, that happened for me this morning. Retrieval failure theory, you didn't remember it well in the first place, so you ain't going to remember it now in the second place. I feel like these theories really reflect who I am. (laughs) But here's my theory. It's called ungratefulness. And it's not really a theory. Moses says in Deuteronomy 8, to the same nation way before In the beginning, before they even got to the land, he says, for the Lord your God is going to bring you into a good land. It's going to be good. A land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing. He says, and you shall eat and be full, and you shall bless the Lord for the good land he has given you. A grateful heart remains grateful through humility. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. A humble heart blesses the Lord for what he has given physically and what he has done spiritually. But we don't need a reminder to eat and be full. No one had to remind you to go eat those donuts out there. But the second part is where we forget. And you shall bless the an expression of praise, an expression of thankfulness. Hosea isn't just talking about materialistic possessions, though. He said their hearts were lifted up. Their hearts were lifted up. What does that mean? They became high-minded. They became conceited. They became above it all, including God in their hearts, and they became prideful. So a question for us is, do our lives generate a blessing to the Lord? Do our lives generate genuine thanks towards God? Because when we've made our own false conclusion that our achievements, our triumphs, Our victories, our righteousness come from us and not directly and fully from God himself, then we have also forgotten God. But he has given all of this to us so that we can bless him. He's not hesitating to give us anything, but we're hesitant to bless him so that we may bless the Lord. And Moses, again, to the same nation that warned Israel, 
the same chapter of Deuteronomy 8, verse 17 says, Beware, lest you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. Like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so shall you perish before you, because you do not obey the voice of your Lord your God. This warning, this gentle warning before they even got to the land has now become an experiential reality to the audience of Hosea. He will be like a lion to them. A bear robbed of her cubs. A leopard lurking beside the way. It wasn't a warning anymore. It was happening. And verse 9 summarizes the rest of the chapter. He destroys you, O Israel, for you are against me, against your helper. God's holy anger is displayed. He says, where now is your king to save you in all your cities? Where are your rulers? Where are the kings that you demanded from me? Where are your ungodly kings that you trusted over me? I gave you kings even though you didn't need it. I'm your king. Now I give you a king in my anger. Sending you one more king, an enemy king, the Assyrian conquer to destroy all your cities. And Hosea goes on saying, all of your sins are accounted for by God. Your spiritual negligence is like a breech baby unable to come out of the womb. And God asks a rhetorical question in verse 14. Shall I save them from the power and sting of Sheol, means the grave in Hebrew. And the answer here is presumed no. The sting of physical death is a spiritual death, a eternal separation from God, apart from Christ. And God is saying, there is no protection from my judgment apart from me. And he's calling on the power of death to do its job without the mercy and compassion of God being involved. The nation's treasuries would be robbed and the most vulnerable, the children, and the pregnant women would be brutally killed. And if the treasury and the most vulnerable people in the city are being killed, it is a signal, the end of a city. In verse 16, it it isn't an easy verse for me to digest and move forward. But why did Hosea have to include this detail? How does this point to a loving God? And initially, I didn't want to bring attention to this verse. And then the Tennessee shooting happened last week where a woman killed three nine-year-olds and three adults in a school, where the most vulnerable gather to learn. 
I wouldn't have ever guessed that I'd be working in a safer place than my wife, Sarah, who's a teacher at a school. And I know our minds may go to, man, if we had more guns or if we had less guns, we can have opinions on that. I have opinion, but not up here. But that's not the point of this. In a very dark way, it brought context. It's what's happening today with school shootings, with abortions, with senseless wars, much different than we what read in Scripture. And I think it's in here because God is not trying to be subtle. He's not being subtle with the reality of evil, the danger of sin, and the consequences of going against God. He's also not subtle about his anger, his anger that reflects his holy nature responding to evil. We are the ones that are unjust, not God. Sin has consequences and there will be judgment. And God wants to know that and he's making it clear that it will not end well if we go against God. We can't afford to forget him. As sinners like us, we're not safe in the presence of holiness because we are guilty of sin, but... Sinners like us who believe in the one that came to take on that judgment, came to take on that wrath on our behalf, not only are we safe in the presence of holiness, we are declared righteous, not guilty in Christ, and we get to approach the throne of grace and confidence. He's not trying to be subtle about evil. Evil is purely evil. And he's not trying to be subtle about his goodness and his love. He allows us to return to him through repentance. And one of the ways that we remain faithful to God is through repentance. As chapter 14 starts, at this point, scholars believe that the cities lie in ruin. And the survivors are making their trek into exile in Assyria. Hosea isn't talking to a nation anymore, but to individuals and offering them hope. Hosea, once again, the same message is inviting them to turn to God. Look at Hosea 14. 14.1 says, Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Repentance starts with turning to God in acknowledgement and acceptance of our own iniquity, our own evil and unrighteousness. Not that we just made a mistake. The world can do that. We've all made a mistake, yes. But repentance is understanding that we've offended a holy God. Verse 2 says, take with you words and return to the Lord. Repentance is also confession. As the text says, taking up words with you, meaning it's not a generic feeling of remorse and shame, but it involves specific confession, straightforward confession of what you've done. Verse 
Verse 2, say to him, take away all iniquity, accept what is good. Repentance is appealing to the mercy of God in Christ. Psalm 51 says, one says, Lord, have mercy on us. Hosea says, take away all iniquity, and the orphan finds mercy. It's because of his grace, mercy, that gives us life. And the end of verse 2 says, and we will pay with bulls and the vows of our lips. Repentance is a lifelong cycle of offering or vowing yourself to God. Regardless of the shame, regardless of the number of times we failed, the lies that we believe, God still desires you. He still wants you. He won't desire you any less. He won't desire you any more because he loves you perfectly because he is love. If you go to God in humble acknowledgement, in confession, appealing for his mercy, offering yourself, vowing yourself to him, you will be forgiven in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Church, does our repentance look like this? Or have we watered down our repentance? This is so crucial for our faith, going back to God by the words of Jesus as he began his ministry and started to preach. He says in Matthew 4, 17, from that time, Jesus began, began to preach saying, repent. This is how he started his preaching ministry. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The call of repentance in our lives allows us to be faithful to him. However, we still fail him. We still fail him. So ultimately, our faithfulness to him can't be based on what we do. It's got to be rooted in what he has done, in God's faithfulness. And the proof of his faithfulness is seen in his promises of restoration. The promises of restoration. Now we get to the hope. We see God's heart in these last verses of the book. God shares about his work, his business. He says, I will heal their apostasy, meaning I will change your desires. I will give you a new heart. Regardless of how long you've been wandering away from me, I will love you freely. I will love you freely, not out of obligation, not out of reluctance, but out of choice. I will love you. It is my choice. I will love you. And he shares beautiful, these beautiful analogies of God's restoration. He says, he shall blossom like the lily. God's saying, I will restore your image. You were made in my image. You are mine. You are beautiful. He says, he shall... He says, he shall take root like the trees of Lebanon, and I will restore your strength. I will be your foundation. I will give you strength. He says, his shoots shall spread out and shall be like the olive, and I will restore your worth and produce fruit in you. You are mine. I will do the work. 
And he says, and his fragrance like Lebanon. Fragrance, smelling good, is delight. I will restore your joy. I will restore your delight. Your delight will be found in me. And why does he do all this? Because God loves us. And if we are in Christ, God is actively doing this in us right now. Only he can restore us. Only he can redeem us. Only he can restore life from death. Come to me. Be under my shadow. You'll be protected. You'll be preserved by me. You will have no other need than me. I'll take after you. I look after you. I am fully sufficient for you. And then we finish, that we finish up Hosea in a, in a couple of minutes here. We'll see the words of Hosea again very soon. Because Sunday is coming, Easter is coming. In our next series, looking at 1 Corinthians 15, where Hosea 13, 14 is cited by Paul. First Corinthians 15 says this. It says, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? This time, those verses aren't asked in a rhetorical way of summoning death to Ephraim. No, this time, Paul states it in a taunting celebration of Christ's resurrection and the reversal of death in Christ. He quotes Hosea and then he adds this. This is what we got to remember. This is the 25% that we got to remember after day six. This is what we must not forget. The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. What once was stated before a destruction of a nation due to sin is now stated as hope of sinners to the forgiveness of sin in Christ. Through Christ's death and resurrection, he has done it. He has restored us. He has brought victory. He has saved us. He remains undefeated and he remains faithful to us. continue to remember and understand these words. I didn't forget the last verse. Don't worry. But let's end our time with some 
quiet reflection, asking the Spirit of God to convict us of our sin, to repent and go back to God, to help us understand these words from the Word and, and to be reminded that Christ is our one and true hope. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them. But transgressors stumble in them. So let's take a minute to be with God, to talk to God, to thank God, to bless God. Let's remember him individually. And then I'll pray, and then we'll take communion as a family to remember him that way too. So let's pray. Let's remember him. Thanks for listening. For more audio content and information about redemption, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org.